thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we're right now still working our way in the sixth trumpet in chapter 10, specifically chapter 10, verse 1, and hopefully we'll be able to go all the way through chapter 11, verse 14, when where this trumpet ends. Um, this is a... Uh, passage of the book of Revelation that requires us one more time to say uh, Alice in Wonderland Syndrome, beware, because it's one of those hypnotic chapters. We're going to be immediately attracted to a very materialistic, literalistic interpretation, and we're going to scratch our heads wondering what is going on here. Let's read it first. So follow with me if you have Uh, your Bible with you, beginning of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on sea and land lifted up his right hand to heaven And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, as he announced to his servants, the prophets, should be fulfilled. And the voice which I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel 
and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten, eaten it, my stomach was bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for forty-two months, and I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war upon them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three days and a half, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up hither, and in the sight of their foes they went up to heaven in a cloud. And at the hour, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That second woe is the sixth trumpet that uh, we talk about. And the reason why they mention the three woes is because those are the three woes that follow the flying of the eagle who announced the next three woes. So if you recall, we had the first four trumpets which hit all the natural world. And then we had the eagle flying in midair announcing woe, woe, woe. And we had the next three trumpets. Right? The fifth brought the locusts. The sixth, which is what we're studying right now, brought those horses and their horsemen. And we're seeing the after effect of that. So in context, chapter 10 continues right after the passage where we read the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot either see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or their thefts. So, the sixth plague came, if you recall, and it partially affected humanity. One-third, 
part of humanity was killed, physically killed. Because we're taught, whenever we hear those who dwell on earth in Revelation, it's a technical term used to indicate those who do not believe, meaning those who made earth their final dwelling. Right after all this, we see a mighty angel coming down from heaven. Beginning of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun. Before we look at the description of this angel, there is one element that we need to note, which is very important to explain the rest. We're back on earth. Then I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he set one foot on land and one foot on the sea. So now the vision moves back from heaven down to earth. We write about the middle of the book. The book has 22 chapters, and we're now chapter 10 and 11. Right about the middle, recall in the beginning, St. John was, was actually still is on the Isle of Patmos. He had the first vision on earth. The Lord came. He saw Jesus as the Lord walking among the seven lampstands. And we had a very specific language used then by the Lord to the churches. He's visiting the church. After that, beginning with chapter 4, a door was opened in heaven and St. John moves up there. And from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 9, Everything we saw was presented to us from the vantage point of heaven. Now, we're coming back down. Keep that in mind because it's going to play a very important role in how we present everything. Overall, what do we have here at the end of that sixth trumpet? So the beginning of the sixth trumpet, the ungodly are punished. They're hit really hard. And we were told at the end that the rest of mankind did not repent of the works of their hands. We cannot think of that statement as being a static statement. Oh, well, you know, they're living in their own little camp over there and they're not repenting. That has very important implication on the life of the church. Because what do you think these people will do now that they did not repent? Are they going to tolerate the church? Are they going to put up with the church? No. So what, what is this statement leading to then? It is leading to a war. You understand? It is leading to a war. The war may not be physical, in terms of people holding arms and shooting each other, but it is certainly spiritual. And it's ongoing. So that statement, when he says, they did not repent, the negative side is that they themselves refused God. That's on the negative aspect of did not repent. The positive, meaning the positive action, not positive morally, is that they're going to take action against the church. All right? 
that is taking place down here on earth. So now the focus is on how the church is going to react and behave knowing that these people did not repent. The church on earth is God's outpost into the world. It is God's embassy. God has opened an embassy on earth, and you go to this embassy to get your visa to go to heaven. All right? Now, the world is at war. And we're going to see what happens down here. So, the first thing we note is this angel coming down. He comes down, and he is an extraordinary angel. No other angel is described like this angel. No other angel has characteristics that this angel has. He comes down, and he's holding in his hand a little scroll. Recall from chapter 4. What happened in chapter 4 when St. John went up to heaven? What did he see? Before the scroll. He saw God the Father on a throne. Right? Flip back quickly to chapter 4. So you, you, you understand the similarity and how this is implied here. So he goes up there, and in chapter 4, verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there appeared like jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow. All right? Chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Back to chapter 4. From the throne issue flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder. And then right here, we have his legs like pillars of fire. And a little later, we have the seven thunders that sounded. On the throne, the one who's sitting on the throne appears at one point holding a scroll. This angel is holding a scroll. A little later, we see the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, who goes up and then takes the scroll. In a little while, we're going to see St. John going to that angel and taking the scroll. You see the similarities? In chapter 4, we have a divine scene. In chapter 10, it is a scene involving an angel and an apostle. Chapter 4 happens up in heaven. Chapter 9 happens down on earth. It is the same reality. What happened in heaven is happening on earth. We need to understand what is going on here. It's very important. But note the parallelism. It is very important. This angel, as I said, is extraordinary. In the whole book of Revelation, there are only two occasions where the word mighty angel, 
the expression mighty angel is used. We've seen the first one. That's in chapter 5, verse 3. A mighty angel asked, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Right? There was a mighty angel who asked that question, and if you recall, no one was found worthy until the Lamb came and opened the scroll. And here's the other occurrence of a mighty angel now down here on earth. He has attributes which are given only to God in the Old Testament or to God and Christ in Revelation. What are those attributes? First of all, the angel is wrapped in a cloud. Wrapped in a cloud. Only God in the Old Testament was wrapped in a cloud. No one else was wrapped in a cloud. Now, of course, um, you have prophets who were in the cloud. You have disciples who were in the cloud. For instance, when Jesus was transfigured, you see the cloud coming over the, the mountain. And so Peter, John, and James are in the cloud, but not wrapped in the cloud around them. That is something typically only seen uh, with God. The other area which is very important to us, and we've talked about it numerous times, is in Daniel chapter 7. The one like the Son of Man comes on a cloud to receive authority from the Ancient of Days. Okay? So, that is a characteristic that this particular angel has as he comes down to earth. This is really important. Right? All the other angels remain, so to speak, in heaven. They haven't set foot on earth. This one does. And he's bringing with him characteristics which belong to God the Father that we've seen so far. But also characteristics that belong to God the Son. Like what? First of all, his legs. Right? In chapter 10, we read that his legs are like pillars of fire. The feet of our Lord in the beginning of the book of Revelation are like bronze, which was burnished, gleaming. His face shines like the sun. The same thing about the apparition of Jesus, with the face shining like the sun. So this particular angel combines characteristics of the Father and of the Son. It is also interesting that this angel recalls God the Father um, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, where the same vision is seen from below. So the same vision that we saw in chapter 4, Ezekiel sees it from below, not above, St. John sees it from above, Ezekiel sees it from below, and he, the, the description of the one sitting on the throne, God the Father, is very much alike what we see here in describing this angel. So, who is this angel? And why is this angel coming down, not, maybe more logically, Christ? Why is this angel coming down, to hand a scroll, never mind what the scroll is for this moment, why isn't it Christ coming down? You see, something is 
many, many commentators, both Protestant and Catholic, would argue that chapter 10 and 11, and maybe even 12 and 13, are like a parenthesis that is open in the whole vision. They're, they're sort of, they're there, but they're not really part of the, re, they're not part of the main flow of the story. And many commentators do a great job at explaining the details, but they still leave us hanging. Why is it there? Why is this angel, why are we back on earth? Why is this angel coming down now? What's the point? All right. There are some other important elements of this angel. I'm going to answer those questions, by the way, those questions, by the way, but I'm, I'm just planning them in your mind if you've not thought of them before. He has a rainbow around his head, and his feet or his legs are like pillars of fire. What do those two ideas suggest to you? What do they bring up? What do they evoke? Heaven and hell. Interesting. Uh, I can see why, but I don't think it applies here. I'll tell you why in a minute. Any other idea? Why judgment? Okay, legs of bronze, yes. That's it, the two covenants, right? The, co the covenant with Noah, what was the sign of the covenant with Noah? The rainbow. And what are the pillars? A sign of what? Remember, we're back on earth. you got to think this way. Moses. Moses, the Exodus. The two pillars, pillars of cloud by day, and pillar of fire by night. Okay? So, the covenant with Noah applies to whom? Does it apply to Israel only? No. To whom? Everybody. Mankind. In particular, it covers whom? The Gentiles. And the covenant with Moses applies to whom? Israel. Israel. Again, remember the three distinctions between Hebrews, Israelite, and Jews. Never confuse those. Hebrews are descendants of Eber, who's a great, great grandfather of Abraham. Right? Israel, Israelites are all descendants of Israel, Jacob. The Jews are descendants of Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. By extension now, today, Jews and Israel, Israelites are confused because who lives in the state of Israel? Jews. But, and that's fine for today when you talk about modern world. But when you talk about scripture, it's not fine at all, especially the new, the new, the gospels. You'll get yourself really, really confused if you think that Jews and Israelites are the same. They're not. Okay? Back to our point. What does this angel do? He comes down and he said, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What is the land a symbol of? Israel. The land is a symbol of Israel. What is the sea a symbol of? The Gentiles. Setting your foot on the land and on the sea when you are a being of authority means what? Means it falls under my authority. You understand? That's what it means. I'm taking possession of both. And now you understand why the rainbow and the pillars of fire. 
the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Moses. This angel effectively is saying, I'm bringing with me the authority of God the Father and God the Son over the entire Old Testament, over the entire world, and I am now making it manifest. I'm setting my, my, my feet on the land and on the sea to mean that both of them are going to be brought on, into covenantal subjection to the authority of Christ. Why is it an angel that is doing that? Because who ministered to the people of God during the Old Testament? Angels. If you recall our series we've done on the angels, we've gone through the details in explaining that. There's this hierarchy where Moses would speak to the angels, I mean, uh, and, and Aaron would speak to the angels, and the angels would speak to God. Right? We did not have a direct mediator as we do today. So, that awesome angel is coming down from heaven and he sets foot, one on earth, one on the land, and one on the sea. And he's bringing them under, under subjection. Now, what does that suggest about the work of the angels prior to Christ? Was it complete? Were the angels able to do what they wanted to do in the world? No. Otherwise, why do it now? Do you get it? There is something that the angels are now able to complete, which they were not able to complete before. Okay? Are you with me on that? We're going to see that also a little bit further down when we read about the battle between the dragon and, and Michael, St. Michael, right? And how the dragon is thrown down to earth. And we mentioned also that there was, on the part of the angels, a certain frustration because they were not able to do the, what they wanted to do, primarily because the conquest of the devil and his demons cannot be accomplished without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation to the human race cannot be brought by an angel. It takes Christ, true God and true man, who, through his merit, saves us. Never forget that. Christ did not save us just by being God, so to speak. In other words, He didn't just enact an act of His will, I want them saved and they were saved. It was done. That's not how He did it. What did Christ do when He came down here? He suffered. Why do we say that in the creed? He suffered. Why do we say He suffered, died, and was buried? That's the apostolic creed. Why? Because... It is the merit that Christ gained by His suffering that allows Him, true God, true man, to intercede on our behalf. It is through the human suffering of Jesus Christ that the wrath of God the Father is appeased. Because the human suffering of Jesus Christ are linked 
in a mysterious way with a divinity. And therefore, they acquire infinite value. And hence, they can fulfill and satisfy the justice of God the Father. Do you understand that? Without the suffering, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, angels are crippled. They cannot complete their work. And, of course, they have a very personal interest in complete that work because, after all, the reason why the human race fell, at least partially, is partly is due to one of them. All right? So now we see this mighty angel described in glorious terms come down to earth, and now he's going to do something really interesting, which we've never seen an angel do throughout Scripture. He lift up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who's that? That's God, right? That's a, it's again a Judaic expression where you never say the name of the Lord. What does it mean to swear? What, is he, what did he just do? No, not bear witness. Pardon? Oath. That's it. He just took an oath. You understand why you go to court, you raise your right hand? Put the other one on, on scripture and you swear an oath. Okay? That's what comes from. That's what comes from. Okay? In other words, you're raising your hand up. What does it mean to raise your hand to heaven? Symbolically, what are you doing? No, you're holding God's hand. Alright? You're saying, My hand in yours, yours in mine. Okay? And then you put your left hand on the scripture and you say, I swear, you just took an oath because you're invoking God's name to say the truth, nothing but the truth, all the truth, so help me God. And the part that we conveniently never say in, in, in court, but applies nonetheless, or I'll be damned. That's how you uphold the, the system, the, the, the justice system, is by calling on the curses of the covenant. Meaning that if I am lying to you, court and you think I'm saying the truth, may all the curses recorded in this book come upon my head, because I invoke God's name. But if I'm saying the truth, and you think I'm lying, may all the blessings in this book come upon my head. That's why the court system used to work before, because people understood the covenant. Now they think it's free. So giving your word, giving witness, taking an oath, means nothing. You know what? It still means exactly the same thing. Why? Because who's the underwriter of that oath? God is. And, and the first commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. And so most people these days go to court and do all that. They're, what are they doing? They're taking the name of God in vain. So the, the curses apply even more forcefully. So he raises his hand to heaven and he, and he, 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 make, he takes an oath. What is the oath? In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, as he announced to his servants, the prophets, should be fulfilled. So there is a mystery which was announced to the prophets, 
And it will be fulfilled in the days of the seventh trumpet, which is forthcoming. That indicates to us, therefore, that in, in, a, in a real sense, the angels were not able to do something and are still not able to do it until that seventh trumpet sounds. Right? So, you've heard what those trumpets bring. You've heard the fifth trumpet. You've heard the sixth trumpet. Were they pleasant? Would you say they were pleasant? They were certainly not pleasant. But now think about what this angel is saying. In the days of the seventh trumpet, that mystery that was announced to the prophets will be fulfilled. Now, are you happy those trumpets are sounding? Yeah. I just wanted to point that out to you. It's not all about doom and gloom and destruction and death. It's about something glorious that God is doing. Because of man's sinfulness and because of rejection of God, the means to do it tend to be sometimes horrible. But the end is glorious. That's what you have to keep your eyes on. Before we describe further what that mystery is, let's go back and then pay attention to what the angel is doing. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Like a lion roaring is the third sign, the third indication that he is endowed with the powers of Christ. Because again, in, if you recall from chapter 4, that John is told that the one who can open the scroll, which is sealed, is the Lion of Judah. And then we see a lamb standing as though slain. The Lion of Judah. So he's roaring like a lion. We see the two aspects of God the Father and God the Son combined in this awesome, powerful angel. By the way, as an aside, think of the image of this angel. And then go on the net and check how angels are represented these days. No wonder if we were to see such an angel standing in front of us, what do you think would be tempted to do? We're tempted to worship him. I mean, the, 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 the words do not really convey the awesome image that this, of, of this angel. Now, yeah, there is, there is one passage that's worth quoting, which is from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 16 and 19. 16 through 19 which refers to the presence of God. And you will see the similarities. And this particular passage is very important to help us understand what's going on here. Moses has prepared the people to, to meet God for the first time. So for three days, they were supposed to purify themselves and then go to Mount Zion, Mount um, Sinai, I'm sorry. And then there, God would meet them. And that's a description of God coming down. On the morning of the third day, there were... There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So, cloud, thunders, trumpet, right? So that all the people were 
who were in the camp trembled. By the way, this very loud trumpet blast is not blasted by a human. Okay? It's a divine trumpet. Just as we have those trumpets which are used by the angels. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Alright. His feet. As we read here. His legs like pillars of fire. Notice the element. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain quaked greatly at the sound of the trumpet. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. God answered him in thunder. What do we have here? When, he's, when, he, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded out. Who are the seven thunders? God. So God said something. He said seven things. So seven thunders, one after the other, sounded. So God spoke and said seven things. And St. John tells us, I was about to write. So obviously, when he says the seven thunders sounded, he doesn't mean that seven thunders sounded like a trumpet or something, right? It's an expression to mean God is speaking. And I was about to write what God said, but I was told, I heard a voice from heaven. And again, anytime we hear the passive, a voice, the thunder sounded, we don't have a subject, we don't know who's doing it. It's a Hebraic way of saying the Lord. Because every other place, St. John will tell us, the angel, the beast, the woman, whenever he speaks in a passive, it's typically a way of saying the Lord. Seal up and do not write it down. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Okay? So what is that? God said something that He did not wish us to know. Now, isn't that strange? You think about it and you say, well, God, if you really didn't want us to know that, whatever you said, why did you say it? Why did you say it? Notice, this is not the first time that God does that. If you recall from our series on Daniel... Gabriel, the, arch, the, the archangel, came down and spoke at length with Daniel. And at the end, what did he tell him? Seal up the words of the prophecy. Seal them up. Meaning, there are times to be, the time for these words to be understood are not yet here. Okay? Are not yet here. So anyone who thinks that Scripture contains everything God wanted to tell us is going to have a problem right here. Because it is obvious that God said something to St. John and St. John did not write it down. Hmm? We're going to 
we, we, we are going to spend a little bit more time understanding why. By the way, there is also yet another one of those allusions to Genesis. God in the garden planted the tree of good, of the knowledge of good and evil. You remember that? He planted that tree, and what did he tell Adam? Don't touch it. Well, God, if he didn't want him to touch it, why put it there? Right? Do you, when you want to feed your children, give them their meat, their potatoes, and their vegetables on a plate and put right in front of them three pounds of ice cream and tell them, don't touch it? You do that? But that's what God just did. So even though the subject is different, the pattern, the fatherly pattern is the same. God gave St. John. He says something and told St. John, seal it up. Not yet. What is the intent, therefore? He planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he intended to give it to Adam. In its good time. When Adam was ready, he was going to give it to him. The prophecy with, with Daniel was sealed because its time was not yet. Guess what? It's being unsealed right now in the book of Revelation. Whatever was said was sealed. Its time was not yet. Its time will come. All right? But I'll, I'll have more to say about that in a minute. I just want to go back to um, to what the angel is doing. So notice the, the, the oath that he took was by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay. Why did the angel swear by the one who lives for, forever and ever, by that which he created, the, the earth and that is in it, the heavens and the sea. Why? Any connection with the previous plagues, you think? The four trumpets that hit what? The earth, the sea, the heavens. So that oath is a covenantal oath. It continues. It's in line with what has happened before. It's, like, it's sort of like saying... We've seen already the four trumpets blow, and we've seen their effects on the sea, on the land, and on the heaven. The stars, the sun, the moon, and all that. All those effects came about by, by whom? The one who lives forever and ever. He's the one who did all that. I am swearing by His name, who has the authority to do all these things. That what? There will be no more delay. So all these things that happened before are preparing, are allowing the completion of that which I'm taking an oath about right now. The mystery is going to be fulfilled. So the mystery cannot be fulfilled if these things did not take place first. So there is a logical continuity between what the angel is saying, what happened before, we need to understand what that can, continuity is and why is it here. I wanted to point out to you something really interesting about the cloud. He's wrapped in the cloud, right? 
I want to speak very briefly about two apparitions of Our Lady. Contrast them. The first one is the apparition of Our Lady at Lourdes. When St. Bernadette saw Mary, where was Mary standing? Pardon? No, not at Lourdes. In the grotto, a little bit above ground, right? There was no cloud. But you're, you're getting there. You, you have the right idea in mind. In Fatima, where was Mary standing? On the cloud. Okay. Contrast the two message, the two messages. What did Mary ask for? What did she say in Lourdes? Penance, penance, penance. Pray the rosary. Right? In substance, that was her message. And then she said, I am the Immaculate Conception, when Bernadette asked her about who she was. What happened in Fatima? What did she say? First, she showed the children hell, right? Among other things. And then she said what? The Lord is about to punish the world with another war. Right? What is the difference between Lourdes and Fatima? Lourdes was like the seals. Get it? It was a warning. Pray or else. Fatima was like the trumpets. She was standing on the cloud. You understand? It was, she was not standing on the cloud because she was cute. I said she was not standing on the cloud because she was cute. I am not denying the fact that Mary is cute. <laughs> I'm simply saying that was not the reason why. We think of it as cute. Oh, a little cloud, little puff of something, and Mary is just like, you know. We don't. I'm just pointing that out to you because for someone who is seeped in Scripture and understands the meaning of those things, when that someone hears that Mary stands on a cloud... This person knows how to interpret the signs of times. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Mary, in all her apparition, is very biblical. The way she dresses, the way she stands, the way she speaks, the way she prays. And we oftentimes miss much of what she's saying, even by her bodily behavior, the color she chooses, and everything else because we're not aware of their meaning in Scripture and the whole history, the rich biblical history behind it. This angel, obviously, is a very powerful angel. There have been many interpretations given as to who that angel be. One is it's Christ, it's the theophany of Jesus Christ. Christ in angelic form. I don't think it applies because it will deny the incarnation. Once Christ has, has one the sec, once the second person of the Most Holy Trinity becomes true God and true man, and as St. John said, we have seen Him, there is no need for Him to appear as an angel anymore. He has now, He has taken on human form, a human body, 
And that's how he is. In a sense, it's almost like denying the, his, his, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So I think this is very weak. And there's no need for it. You will see why in a minute. A second explanation is that this is the angel of the Lord. If you recall, in the book of Exodus, um, Moses is told that the angel of the Lord will come and will smite the children. Right. So an expression, again, to represent the theophany. Theophany means the presence of God in angelic forms. Okay. So, for instance, the three men that came and visited Abraham, if you recall, it's called a theophany. Right. Uh, again, I don't think there's any need for that. I don't think we need to say God is showing up on earth in, in angelic form. In particular, one reason why either of those expression, ex- explanations don't, doesn't, don't work very well is because of the relationship that John has with this angel. Right? John does not bow down. John does not adore this angel. The third explanation, and um, it is one that I tend to subscribe to, is that this angel is Gabriel. The reason why we might think of him as Gabriel, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of the fact that this is a mighty angel. And what does Gabriel mean? The might of God. Okay? The second is that Gabriel was typically is the one who is sent as a messenger. The third is that he's the angel who appeared to Daniel. And Daniel fell flat on his face thinking he was dead when he saw him. And, and so because of all these reasons, if I were to pick, I would say it is Gabriel. Although St. Michael is another contender also in a specific instance. All right. But we, I, have not still, I have not answered the question is why we have an angel showing up here. I'm getting there. We talked about the seven thunders as the voice of God. And um, we know that each peal of thunder carried a message, and it's a covenantal message in nature. right? Now, the fact that the messages have been sealed mean two things for us. From an anagogical sense, the sense that has to do with the church, it highlights or emphasizes the teaching office of the church. The teaching office of the church. Although public revelation is complete, it is unraveling in a sense that it continues to be explained and taught in an organic way to every generation through the teaching office. Teaching office, prophetic office, is the same thing. To teach is to prophesy is to make the Word of God present. That's what it is. The teaching office of the church is, is underlined here. Why? Because St. Saint, Saint John, let's never forget that, is what? An apostle. He's one of the pillars of the church. So because of the community, because of the unity of all apostles with Peter, the head, what is given to one of them is given to all. And therefore, what is being sealed is being sealed not by John the individual, but by John the apostle, meaning by the church, one of her representatives. And hence, it is up to the church to to, to 
open up to us those things which God did not reveal to us at one point in time. And of course, there is one very good example we can think of, and that is the third secret of Fatima. Right? Now, quickly, the church has three offices, right? The office of teaching, prophetic office, the priestly office, ministerial office, and then the pastoral office, governing office. Those are the three offices of the church. The other interesting thing is that the sealing occurs before the fulfillment of the mystery. That suggests to us that that fulfillment of the mystery is really important for the plan of God to unfold. It occurs before. It's in the sixth seal, preparing for the seventh. And lastly, we can say also about the seven thunders that from an eschatological point of view, eschaton, the last things, right, the end of time, we can say that God has sealed up a secret which will be revealed at the end time. So certain things will be revealed to us at the end of the world. And we will understand what we cannot understand today. So anytime you and I are tempted to say, Lord, I don't understand. Right? Why is that happening to me? I don't understand. We should have ready in our mind an answer that would say, well, you're not dead yet. I'm not done telling you the story. I don't know if you have that, but some of my kids will be sitting watching a movie. And I have not seen the movie before. And in the middle of the movie, somebody does something. Let's say a guy falls from a window. And we don't see the guy again. So my son in particular will say, is he dead, Dad? What happened to him? Where is he? Why don't we see him again? I'm looking at the kid and thinking, wow. I'm, I'm really proud of you, kid, to think that I can actually have the omniscience to know what happened in the movie. My typical answer is, okay, you want to ask questions or you want to watch the movie? And oftentimes, God is saying to us, you want to ask questions or you want to follow me? So just keep that in mind. I'm not saying don't ask questions. Ask questions. But if God didn't answer, it doesn't mean that's not going to answer ever. Just that certain things are sealed. And they will be revealed in their good own time. So now, let's talk about the fulfillment of the mystery. Because it is only when we talk about the fulfillment of the mystery, we will understand why we have an angel. Why is that important? What is this mystery he's talking about? We've already touched upon that. And it is connected also with the two covenants that we mentioned and with that passage from Exodus where God comes down from and, and meet the Israelite on Mount Sinai. In Ephesians chapter 3, and i got to tell you, when you read this passage or when you hear it in this context of this mighty angel coming down, I don't know if it's like me, but I get goosebumps. St. Paul tells us, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in heaven. Let me read that to you again. The mystery is what? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in heaven. So, what is this mystery? It is that through the church, the angels, principalities and powers, will come to know and learn about about the wisdom of God through the church. If you think about it, it's a complete inversion of the order. It used to be that humans in the Old Testament learned from angels. (coughs) And now there is a reversal that is taking place. Angels are learning from humans in the church. So the teaching and prophetic office of the church is not only for humans. It is also for angels. If the angels were not saints, they may be tempted to say, well, I don't want that. Why should those punny little humans teach me anything? I'm so smart than, than them all. And they are. But these angels are saints. They have already accepted God's plan, submitted to Him, and they are eager to bring this about. Namely, that they will learn from us. Why? Why is it then important? First of all, do you understand now why it is important to have this mighty angel come down? As a mighty angel, representative of the angels, he comes down and he is taking an oath that that mystery is going to be complete. It will take place. Meaning all the angels are going to apply themselves to make this mystery a reality. It is the angels who are also members of the church. You know when we say, I believe in one holy, holy, typically, we kind of wonder about that because we look at each other. We're standing here, right? And that's all we see. How could that be holy? According to the fathers, there are myriads upon myriads of angels in heaven. Their number is uncountable. I would dare to say that the majority of the members of the church are angels, not humans. Why are they so eager? Precisely because of the death, the passion, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord, and because the church is His bride. That's why they're so eager. What is going on here, essentially, with this angel coming down to earth, it is very important that this is taking place on earth. Why? Because the scene we saw in chapter 4, where God the Father gave the Son authority over the whole world, by the Son opening the seals, is now manifested down here in His church 
by one of her representative, St. John the Apostle. It is effectively a gesture that says, from an angel, a mighty one, to an apostle, you are now in charge. It is up to you, and we will be helping you, we will be participating, but on earth, you humans, which you can do before, now you can do, are in charge to bring this reality, to make it a reality. That's what's going on here. That's why it is very important that it happens in 6, right before 7. Why? Because right after chapter 11, I'm not going to get to it tonight, I was very optimistic, um, we see the martyrs, we see the witness, okay, given by the believers. And it's through the action of the believers that that mystery is fulfilled, with the participation of the angels. But not like before. Before, in the Old Testament, we were subservient to the angels. Not anymore. That is why it is important that this happens here. Now, I have a little bit more time. I want to cover the little scroll. and we will stop right there because this would cover basically chapter 10. What is this little scroll? First of all, notice it's open. Therefore, it's not a mystery. Anyone can read it. It's open. right? That's important. It's a little scroll compared to the big scroll or the, the scroll that Jesus, the Son of God, has received from the Father with the seals. This one is unsealed. And it's a little scroll. Some commentators see, it, see in it a book containing judgments to be announced against the world. Sometimes it is narrow, narrowly applied only to chapter 11. Um, I think that the content of the, the scroll really applies to chapters 11 through 18, meaning to the whole set of actions are going to take place until the coming down of the heavenly Jerusalem. It is a covenantal message. It is a prophetic message that makes real what has been already announced in heaven. In essence, it could be even thought of as pastoral. It's something that, has to, that, the, that the leaders of the church have to do to guide the church through what is going to happen soon. Now, why is St. John asked to eat the scroll? He's asked to eat it, and he's told it will be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach. Why is he asked to eat it? Pardon? So he will speak. Yes. Yes. You know the usual saying these days, we are what we eat. All right. So when he eats, what is he eating? The word of? He eats the Word of God, right? And therefore, what is he speaking? What did he, what did he internalize? What did he make his own? The Word of God. And hence, he's speaking the Word of God. That's why he's eating it. Right? It tastes sweet in his mouth because the Word of God is sweet. It turns sour in his stomach. It is an indication that this is a word of judgment. We see that happening with Ezekiel. The same thing happened to him. All right. So what he's about to prophesy is actually words of judgment. And why? Because his action, the activity of St. John, are necessary 
to bring about the completion of the mystery that was announced to the prophets. So effectively, through the whole scene, one element that tends to be overlooked by commentators is that an extraordinary angel is talking to St. John on equal footing. Notice, St. John sees that incredible angel, Daniel, was flat on his face. In this specific instance, St. John is not. And he's told, God tells him, go and take the scroll from the head of the angel. And he goes and he takes it and the angel speaks to him very naturally. Take it and eat it. And you must prophesy against many nations and tongues and kings and languages. And St. John does that. You see conversation among equal. This is very important. Right? It's signaling it's signaling a turn between humans and angels. That's why it is important that it happens now. Now, as a preview in chapter 11, we will see that St. John is asked to measure the temple, only the holy, the inner court. Right? Measuring something in the Old Testament means protecting it. Right? And after that, we have these two witnesses, these mysterious witnesses, who are going to speak the word of God, announce it to the world, and they are killed by the beast that ascends from the abyss, but then they are resurrected, they're brought back to life. And that repeats the same pattern we've seen all over again and again. It is by the sacrifice, by the witnessing, by the silent suffering that Christians bring about the mystery of Christ into the world. Our battle is not a battle of weapons. Our battle is not a battle, battle of words. Our battle is a battle marked by the suffering joined to that of Christ on the cross. So, your, your suffering and mine, most of the time secret and unnoticed, the smallest and the biggest, those are the pearls. Of course, when it's done with a spirit of contrition, with a spirit of sorrow for our sins, when it's done with a spirit of love to Jesus Christ, on their own, suffering can do nothing. But when it's done with that spirit, joined to the infinite merit of Christ on the cross, brings about the fulfillment of the mystery. And what we cannot see with our eyes today, we have to see with faith. And when we are in heaven, God willing, we'll be able to rejoice with the angels on the accomplishment of this mystery. God bless you. We have minutes for questions. So six minutes total. Yes. The question is the end times. I, I spoke of the end times as being the end of the old covenant. And now tonight I'm speaking of the end times being the end of the world. And the answer is both. What is important is to understand that there are multiple ages. There's the old age with the Old Testament. That came to an end. So an end of, the, of that age, the end of that time of that age. And then we live now in a new age, which will also end. So the important thing is not to understand that in an absolute fashion, that end times in Scripture only means the end of the world as we know it today. It doesn't. It means the end of an age. Okay, and sometimes it actually means the absolute end of the world. Yes. Any other question? Yes. The question is God knew that Adam was knew what God knew what Adam was going to do, and yet he still placed that tree in the garden. Why did he do that? The answer because of love. You have a kid, and you know the kid is going to go and um, eat three Kit Kats. 
do you decide not to have a kid because you're going to do that? Put it to you differently. You, you don't have a kid right now. You may one day be married. You can think right now about all the things that your kid will do. Would that prevent you from having a kid? Because of love. See? That's why. Yes? Pardon? What's a scroll? A scroll, good question. A scroll is simply a sort of a paper rolled, and you have to open it um, by kind of pushing the two sides of it. That's all that it is. Yes. A woe. Question is, what is a woe? A woe is a curse. All right. And if you're wondering about that, we have a whole series on the covenant curses and blessings that just go through in detail and explain all that and how it works. All right. Any other question? Yes. Oh, good question. Yeah, the question is, I said there was an inversion. I meant it between the angels and the church. I did not mean it between the angels and the believers. The office of the teaching of the church is a divinely inspired and instituted office given to the church in her capacity to teach the world beyond the weaknesses of each member of the church. It does not mean that I have anything to teach my guardian angel. I don't. Very good question. Thank you for bringing it up. No, we're still essentially under the governance of our babysitter, our guardian angel, who's there to watch over us and guide us and guard us. But as far as the revelation and understanding of the truth of the Trinity, of God, of the mysteries, of all those things that God wished to, to impart upon us and the angels, this is done through the church. Because the church is his bride, and in effect, she is the mother of all. That's why. All right? Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.